Gospels uh, this evening, so Romans chapter 3, and we'll, we'll continue our study tonight of this book of Romans in verse 22. Romans chapter 3 and verse 22. We'll go from verses 22 to 24. Actually, for context, if you'll allow me, because we're in a bigger context in verses, the context of verses 21 through 26, so as we read... If you'll read along with me, beginning in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. One of the primary competing worldviews to Christianity in our day is a view called secular humanism. In secular humanism, the, the primary confession or their, their primary stance that they take, is that man is the measure of all things. This is, whether we understand it or not, this is the competing worldview. People tend to either be Christians or they're secular humanists, even if they belong to a Christian denomination or some other faith. Either Jesus Christ is at the center of your life or mankind is at the center of your life. Secular humanism is something that is, is organized, and it's, it's not an accident. I think Satan's behind the organization, but certainly some, some very famous minds are behind it as well. In fact, in 1933, humanists got together and wrote the first humanist manifesto. And a group of 34 Americans got together and wrote that. And they put uh, quite a few different things together. But generally speaking, secular humanism, as defined in 1933, was atheistic regarding the existence of God. It was naturalistic regarding the possibility of miracles. In other words, they did not believe miracles could take place. It was evolutionistic regarding human origins. It was relativistic, and this is 1933. It was relativistic when it came to uh, moral values. Uh, It was socialistic in its political or economic policy. Interestingly enough, it was very religious in its attitude toward life, but understand their use of the term religion. Hence, you'll see a lot of pastors that grew up in the 30s, 40s, and 50s that that really fought against this word religion when it came to, to describing Christianity. And they would make the point, Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ, making the separation. Religion being... Uh, in a broad sense, man by man's own efforts trying to gain some sort of favor with God, and in these people's case, since they didn't believe in God, with other aspects of humanity. And it was humanistic with regard to the methods which it suggests to those who would achieve its goals. That wasn't enough for them, so 40 years later, they wrote the Humanist Manifesto Number 2 in 1973, and some very well-known people were a part of that as well, and... and um, among the things that they say and, and taught, and the reason I bring these things up, you need to understand what's out there. I'm a little uh, frustrated sometimes with, with the, the Christian community as a whole in that I think we've cocooned ourselves 
placing ourselves in, in the closet, so to speak, and we don't even know the attacks that are coming upon us. I'm not saying that we should spend all our time on the attacks. Our focus should be on Jesus Christ, but we should at least know what's coming our way so we, we know it when we see it, and we know it when our children see it, and when they come home and spew some of these things uh, as a result of classes or or other things that they've taken, but in the, in the I almost said Communist Manifesto, 1973, but same difference. In the Human Manifesto, uh, number two, 1973, they said, first, in the best sense, religion may inspire dedication to the highest ethical ideas. Have you heard that? Listen, it's okay. If, if you need to believe that there's a God, you go ahead. If that's really what, if that's where you are right now in life, you just, you just go ahead. Now, there isn't one. It's a bit silly to do so, but if you need to, you go right ahead. A, a bit condescending, a bit pandering, I think. Uh, the second aspect of the manifesto in, in 1973, uh, that promises of immortal salvation or fear of eternal damnation are both illusory and harmful. So while on the one point, on the one side they say if you need to believe in God, Go ahead and do so. You need to understand, secular humanists believe that the Christian message is a dangerous and evil message. You need to understand, that's what's coming out after you. Um, they also affirm that moral values derive their source from human experience. Ever heard there is no right and wrong? Just, it just is. It's whatever society deems to be right or wrong that will decide is right or wrong. If we decide that this... This, uh, that uh, murder is okay in our society, then we're going to allow murder in our society. If, we, if another society says murder is not okay in their society, who are we to judge them? You see, that's part of the humanist manifesto, and it was written down. These are not ideas that just happen happenstance. There's, there's an organized effort, a religious effort, if you will, to make these things come to pass. They have views on just about everything, but I wanted you to see uh, what a secular humanist was, or at least just an idea. We use the term all the time. And I want to contrast that tonight with the Apostle Paul. Paul was not a secular humanist. If there ever was anybody that was not a secular humanist, it was the Apostle Paul. In fact, if Paul is correct in what he writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, then they are dead wrong in what they hold to. And if they're right, Paul's dead wrong in what he wrote. And as they hold opposing views and contradictory truth claims, both can't be true in the same sense and in the same time. Remember the law of non-contradiction. Somebody has a problem. Either the secular humanists have a problem or we as Christians have a problem because we both can't be right. There can't be a God and not be a God at the same time. It's this simple. Secular humanists say there is no God. There is no absolute standard of right and wrong. And therefore, there are no eternal ramifications to what we do with the time that we have here on earth. Imagine that for just a moment. Imagine that you really believed that. That no matter what you did here, there was no eternal ramification, no eternal price to pay for it, nothing. There was no God to come and discipline you if, as a, a believer in him, as, as we would hold. And there's certainly no eternal damnation. What do you think you would do the next time someone offended you? Well, I know at least about 10 or 12 people in this room right here that would probably do a whole lot more than they're doing right now. Because there'd be no restrictions on you. 
And, and is it any wonder that our society has become more and more and more violent, that we, that we hold life in le- with less and less and less regard, that we hold the, the, uh, the possessions of others with less regard? We want to just take them, whether it's an individual or governments. You know, governments can become secular humanists as well. And so that is the value system of secular humanism. Secular humanism is the underlying philosophy of the overwhelming majority of universities in the United States with only a few notable exceptions. And it is becoming the underlying philosophy of our educational system all the way down to kindergarten. Fortunately, we have enough Christian educators in our country that are standing in the gap for now that it hasn't completely overrun us. And I have to tip my hat to those Christian principals and the Christian teachers in those schools that have held, held strong for Christian, uh, the Christian worldview. But we need to be praying for them because it's a difficult position that they're in. On the other hand, Paul writes that there is a God, that there is an absolute standard of right and wrong, and that all of humanity violates this standard and stands condemned before a holy God. Now, that's different. It's it's quite different from secular humanism. It's quite different from what a lot of people think today. There certainly are, according to Paul, eternal consequences to what we do during our time here on earth. The decisions that we make now have consequences that last forever. I'd say there are two incredibly opposing worldviews there. And we can't ride the fence. One view is consistent with the way things really are. One view corresponds to reality. One view best explains creation. One view is based upon the historically verifiable reality of a person and an event. That's Christianity. The other view, secular humanism, offers none of those. Just out of curiosity, I wanted to ask a secular humanist who doesn't believe that there's a God anyway and doesn't believe that there's a life after one, that doesn't believe that there's any absolute truth, why it bothers them so much that I believe that there is a God. Why does it bother them? Why, why do they have to evangelize for their position? But they do. It doesn't make much sense. But Paul believed that mankind does pay the price for decisions that we make now. And we're right in the middle of a passage that Martin Luther called the central message of the entire Bible. In chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. And we're really tonight in the heart of the heart of that message in verses 22 through 24. Paul begins, Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The word the is is not in the original text. That's why it's in italics in verse 22, in the same way that it is in verse 21, a righteousness that is consistent with God, a God-like righteousness. In verse 22, then, Paul again uses the phrase righteousness of God, but now views it from the human side of this transaction. The case has been made clear that all of humanity has failed with regard to God's moral standard and is in need of justification before God. 
all of humanity. This righteousness cannot be gained by hard work. In fact, the opposite is true. Paul will make that crystal clear when we get to chapter 4. This righteousness from God is obtained through faith. Paul highlights faith as the means by which God's justifying work becomes available to individual human beings. And to make sure that we get the point, Paul starts off even a righteousness or the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Then he says, for all who believe. He wants to make sure that we understand the, the one condition for receiving justification, or as John would have put it in his gospel, for receiving eternal life. Now the New King James Version adds, uh, and on all, after uh, for, for those who believe and, uh, and on all, that is probably not in the original text. So we're going to leave that aside for just a bit. But we might ask, believe in what? Believe in Jesus Christ. It's not enough to have faith in faith. That's another worldview that's gaining more and more popularity. Well, you just need to have faith. But there's no object specified as to the faith that one needs to have. One must exercise faith in the right object for it to mean anything. Jim Myers was here Sunday, and I was really appreciative of the missionary report he gave. I liked the pictures, didn't you? Especially the pictures of the church in Africa that just had those benches. And, and sometimes, you know, I, I don't like preaching in 82-degree weather, and they're probably 100 and something with those little benches. I, I'm very glad that I live in the United States. Of American, we have the comforts that we have. But one time I was ministering with Jim in Almaty, Kazakhstan. Some of you have heard this story. I, interesting, I talked to Jim about it later. He doesn't remember this. I guess he, he has so many different uh, events. But uh, we, were t- we were talking to some pastors from five different countries, all the Shan countries, and uh, in an outside picnic area, although it, it was very much like some of those places you saw in the pictures uh, in Africa, um, only perhaps not as, not as, they certainly didn't sweep the dirt there like they did in Africa. And, and I'll never forget, there was one man, I think from Uzbekistan, that was giving Jim quite a hard time about some things that I had taught that day. I was teaching soteriology, and I was teaching this principle, that it matters what you place your faith in or who you place your faith in. And I was not really part of the discussion. I was really tired from the morning's lecturing, and uh, so I was just kind of sitting back listening to it through translation. But I remember Jim distinctly saying, it does matter what you place your faith in. And he was a pastor, I suppose a Christian pastor, from this other country. And at at that very moment, Jim is arguing with him that it does matter what you place your faith in. I'm not kidding you. At that very moment, the man sat back in an old rickety chair, and it collapsed underneath him. I mean, God's incredible timing. And some of the other guys kind of chuckled. Some, Some people rushed to pick him up. The guy's eyes get just big as saucers, and Jim says, you see, it matters what you place your faith in. That chair wasn't strong enough to hold you up, so it's not just faith in faith. You need to have faith in the proper object, and that's what we're saying here tonight. Salvation comes by means of, or through, faith in Jesus Christ, and all who exercise faith in Jesus Christ will receive this righteousness from God. That's what Paul's doing when he says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. He's not being redundant. He, when he adds, for all those who believe, he's saying, first, the one condition for receiving eternal life is faith in Jesus Christ. And, oh, by the way, nobody's going to be rejected. 
everyone who believes will be justified by God. You see that? So it's not just unnecessary redundancy. Uh, There is no one that is so bad that they will be rejected by God if they place their faith in Jesus Christ. That's something that has very practical applications when it comes to witnessing. Because if you haven't had it happen yet, you will have it happen in the future. Well, you'll be talking to somebody about the Lord, and they say, listen, that might be fine for you, but you don't know what I've done. You don't know the life that I've lived. And you know what I tell them? We don't care at this point. We don't care what you've done. We don't care about the life that you've lived. What I care about is that you understand that you have a need, and I happen to know someone that's met that need, and that's Jesus Christ. You're either going to trust your own goodness to have a right relationship with God, or you're going to trust him. Those are the only two things. It's obvious you can't trust your own goodness, you know, and invite them to trust Jesus Christ. That's what Paul's doing. Salvation comes by faith in Christ, and it is available to all who believe. God will not turn anyone down who comes with the empty hands of faith, understanding they have a need, and placing their faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and for the receiving of eternal life. As we talked about just a moment ago, I believe that there is a a somewhat of a parenthetical idea that comes up here, and some Greek grammarians will even put a period after, at least in their understanding of the text, they'll put a period after for all who believe. Then Paul says, for there's no distinction. And I'd actually like to read it with, with its whole thought. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The idea that some commentators present here is that there's an imaginary objector that has stepped forward in Paul's argumentation. And the imaginary objector would say, now wait a minute, Paul. I'm still not buying this stuff you said about Jewish need. I'm, I'm a child of Abraham. I can buy this stuff about the Gentile need, but are you sure I have that need? I'm a relatively good guy. And Paul says, watch, there's no distinction. And and here probably between Jew and Gentile. But of all humanity, there's no difference. All humanity stands condemned. And we've spent a lot of time going over that in 118 through 320. There is no distinction. And then Paul gives this incredible summary statement of everything that he said between chapter 1, verse 18, and chapter 3, verse 20. And he says, a verse you probably learned when you were a kid. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So once again, Paul says that the, there is an absence of any basic difference among people with respect to their standing before God. There is no distinction. We can say that we understand grace. We can claim that we appreciate grace. But until we really appreciate the cold, hard fact that we were all equally lost before we came to faith in Jesus Christ, then we do not really value grace. I cannot tell you how critical this is to your spiritual life. It's absolutely critical. Without this understanding, pride will slip in under the door. And once pride sets in in your spiritual life, you're in big, big trouble. And the sad fact is you may never realize it because it's so subtle. But this subtlety 
of believing that I wasn't quite as lost as the next person. We might not ever even verbalize that. But deep down in our soul, we see someone else, someone of a category that you just think is just the biggest loser on the planet, the biggest degenerate on the planet, the most immoral person on the planet, the biggest murderer on the planet. I can't be as bad as them. I've got to be just a little closer to heaven than they are. And Paul would say to you, and he would say to me, just like he said to the Jew, there is no distinction. All have sinned, past tense, and fall short of the glory of God, present tense, actually, in the original language. Actually, the two ideas, I believe, are parallel in Paul's thought process. First, there is no distinction amongst human beings. And second, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Again, the term all have sinned, that's in the past tense. And fall short, also can be translated fail to attain or don't measure up, that's in the present tense, to the glory of God. The second verb there states the consequences of the first. We fall short because we have sinned. To fall short of the glory of God means to come short of reflecting the glory of God. That is, conformity to his image. Or to put it another way, because of sin, we have failed to attain the righteous standard that God requires of us so that we might have eternal fellowship with him. We have failed to attain that standard. Now, here's the reality. Here's grace. Here's grace. We have failed just as much to attain that standard as whoever you want to slot in as the worst sinner in history. You want to put Adolf Hitler in there? I'll put him in. And I will say, before I came to faith in Jesus Christ, I'll take, I'll, I'll take it on me, I was just as condemned as Adolf Hitler. Now you can put your own name in, and whoever you want to put in place of Adolf Hitler, if you get that, then you'll realize the price Jesus Christ had to pay for all of us. If you, if, can you imagine the price he would have had to, he had to pay to make Hitler savable? Pretty big price. He had to pay the same price for you and the same price for me. Now, you, now, if you really grasp that, if you really value that, you're going to start to get grace. You'll start to understand grace and appreciate grace. And once you start to understand and appreciate grace, now you can move forward. I mean, really move forward in your Christian life. And that's what you want, isn't it? I mean, you want to glorify God. You're not just doing it for brownie points. You're not just doing it so you can win an argument with someone over some theological issue. I trust the reason that you're here tonight learning about God is because you want to fall more in love with God every day of your life. And he's certainly worthy of your love. And then glorify him every minute that he gives you here on this life, in this life, on this earth. So I do believe that that's somewhat parenthetical, and I think it helps us to understand the flow of his statement. Paul puts very complicated, sometimes, very complicated Greek sentences together, but if we break them down into smaller component parts, we see that his, his thought really isn't that complicated. The Word of God was meant to be understood by every person. You don't, you don't have to have a genius intellect to understand Paul. Matter of fact, if we break it down into his component parts, it's pretty straightforward. Isn't it? We all have a need. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. But there's good news. So he's back to the bad news, good news approach. He just It's almost like he can't help working it in one more time before he gets on to verse 24. 
So again, if we did understand that as parenthetical, if you'll allow me that, if you read verse 22, even a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, and now skip down to verse 24, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. i got to tell you, some have grossly misinterpreted Paul's argument at this point and have stated that Paul's teaching a type of universalism here. Basically, they're saying all have sinned and then all will be justified. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. Paul, by saying that justification is for all those who believe, is excluding those who don't. If I was to say all of those who have a ticket to the first Texans football home game this year will get to go to the game. Now, would any reasonable person think that I also just indicated that you also get to go to the game if you don't have a ticket? No. Why would we think that? So when Paul sets a condition for it, we can't just ignore that. Whether it's Greek, English, or Hebrew, you don't ignore that. And say, well, that condition doesn't matter. Everybody gets in. The Bible doesn't teach universalism. Universalism is the idea that sooner or later, God says, hey, all y'all, y'all come free. Y'all get to come in. I've, I've punished you enough. You know, I'm, I'm tired of all that. Everybody gets to come to heaven. Can I be honest with you for a second? There's, there's a part of me that kind of wishes that's the way it was. Because I, like you, know people that have died that I, I really would seriously doubt that they ever placed their faith in Jesus Christ. I don't even like to think about that. I kind of I wish that there was this universalist idea, but it's not here which makes our presentation of the gospel all that much more urgent. In fact, John Wesley said one time, he feels like the reason people don't tell more of their family and friends about Jesus Christ is they really don't believe in hell. Now, they talk about it, but they really never want to visualize it. They don't really believe in it. But if we truly did, if we truly did understand the differences between what we believe and what secular humanism teaches, we'd want to be shouting this from the rooftops. If you truly do believe it, you wouldn't be worried about embarrassment if we truly did believe it. And I'm telling you, you can truly believe it. So Paul returns to the main line of thought when he says, a righteousness of God which is in faith through Jesus Christ comes to all who exercise faith. Then in verse 24 he continues, being justified freely or without cost or as a gift by his grace, through the redemption accomplished in Christ Jesus. Not everybody, but only those who exercise faith receive the blessing of justification. What about this word to justify? Most of you have heard this before, and our time is short, so I'll make it brief. But to justify means to declare righteous. To declare righteous. And justification may be defined as that gracious act of God whereby on the basis, solely on the basis, of Christ's accomplished mediatorial work, he declares the sinner just. Justification includes both subtraction and addition. It is subtracting the guilt of your sin away from you. But it's also adding a righteousness that's just like God's righteousness, one that he can have eternal fellowship with to your account. So it's more than just to say, just as if I had never sinned. That was popular around the turn of the, between the 1800s and 1900s. 
But justification is more than just forgiveness. It's the addition of a righteousness consistent with God's righteousness to your account so that he can have fellowship with you. He has declared you just. Justification is a matter of imputation or reckoning or charging, if you prefer. The sinner's guilt is imputed to Christ. That happened on the cross. Make it personal. My guilt has been imputed to Christ. Christ's righteousness is then imputed to me at the moment that I trust Jesus Christ. While justification is a matter of imputation, there's another theological term that ordinarily goes right alongside it called sanctification. It's a setting apart. Justification is a matter of imputation. Sanctification is a matter of transformation. In justification, the Father takes the lead. You see that in Romans 8.33. In sanctification, the Holy Spirit takes the lead. You learn that in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. Justification is a once-for-all verdict. It happens once. Sanctification is a lifelong process. They are distinct but not totally separate ideas. And by that I mean one who is justified, one who's been declared righteous, ought also to be sanctified. Now, tragically, we have illustrations and examples of those who aren't. But that's not the norm. The norm would be, once you have been declared righteous by the God the Father, that you would be sanctified by God the Holy Spirit to a life of fellowship with God in Jesus Christ and one that would glorify him. That's the way it ought to work. That's the norm. I'm not saying it's that common. But if you allow me the distinction between those two words, it is normal for that to happen. But you can say no to it with, by the way, very tragic consequences. We are justified freely or without cost. I don't know how more clearly Paul could make this. Salvation, justification is a gift. If I, was, if I were to give you a gift next time we meet, and I told you that it was a gift, and you pulled your wallet out and said, hey, well, let me, let me pay you for that. And I said, no, it's a gift. And you insisted, and you took money out and said, no, there it is. You know what you've just done? You, you kind of insulted me. Because I wanted to do something for you. And if you insist on paying for it, then it's no longer a gift, is it? If, if, you're gonna give, if I'm going to give you a gift, you should say, hey, thanks a lot. Appreciate that. You don't pull your wallet out and try to pay for it. Paul makes it, makes it very clear that justification is a gift. There's one condition for receiving it, and that's faith in Jesus Christ. But you can't pay for it. And again, he'll make that crystal clear when we get to the next chapter, just a few, uh, a few lessons from now. It is freely, the word used in the original, Dorian, means as a gift. In other words, without payment made by one who receives it without any human merit. If the sinner is to be declared righteous at all, it will have to be freely. For it's been shown in the preceding verses, as measured by God's standard requirement, human merit is impossible as far as reaching that requirement. So it's got to be a gift. We can work all year long. We can work all our lives long, and we can never merit it. You've heard the classic example. We could, we could stand out here in the parking lot. 
I could stand out here and Lance Berkman could stand out here and we could have a baseball throwing contest. And we could say, whoever can hit the Gulf of Mexico with a baseball wins. And I may go first and I may, uh, I may get a roll and get it halfway down to, to loop 610 down there. Lance Berkman may, may can haul back and, and throw it and he might, on a bounce or two, he may make it past 610. But both of us have fallen way short of the Gulf of Mexico. And that's what Paul's saying here. There's no distinction. All of us fall short of the glory of God, no matter how good one is as opposed to another. It's got to be a gift. We cannot earn the great and basic blessing of justification. We can only accept it as a gift. The text goes on to say, by his grace. Grace, one of the most beautiful words in all of our language. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace has also been defined as God's riches at Christ's expense. It's, it's been understood as all that God is free to do for man based upon the finished work of Christ on the cross. Grace is a beautiful word. Grace is the key to our eventual maturity in Jesus Christ. We have to understand where we started from. We've got to understand the grace of God before we're going to ever have a right relationship in terms of sanctification with him. It's been said that grace is God's love directed toward the guilty, just as mercy is that same love directed toward those in misery. It's easy then to understand that the word freely or as a gift and by his grace go together. <coughs> the final phrase, and this is where we'll stop, through the redemption accomplished in Christ Jesus. This word redemption occurs ten times in the New Testament. And in those passages in which the term is used, punishment and power of sin. Picture it this way, if you would. We are all born slaves. We're all born slaves to sin. And Jesus Christ, because we had no possibility of buying our own freedom, purchased our freedom for us. That's redemption. This redemption was accomplished in, or meaning in connection with, Jesus Christ, the Savior. Most translators adopt this or some other similar translation like in Christ Jesus. Some prefer by Christ Jesus. The Greek allows for either one, so we'd be splitting hairs, I think, if we went into that too far. The thing we want to remember, though, is redemption was accomplished or brought about through Jesus Christ. That is, by the means of his voluntary suffering and death on the cross. Now, here's where, here's where this really, really matters to your spiritual life. We were all lost without distinction. Whether it's you and me, or whether it's Adolf Hitler or Fidel Castro. Jesus Christ had to pay the same penalty for both of us. Do you for one second, do you for one second think that you deserve that more than Adolf Hitler did? or Mussolini, or Joseph Stalin, or Fidel Castro. If you can, in your soul, honestly, right now, say, I, I know that I didn't deserve it any more than they did. The only reason I'm a child of God right now is not because of my own goodness, but it's because of what Jesus Christ did. If you can really honestly say that, you've taken a huge step tonight, and I hope it won't be the last one.
Heavenly Father, we are so appreciative of what you did for us through your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank you that he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, and that he proceeded to the cross to pay the ransom for our sin. I thank you, Father, that you imputed our guilt to him so that we might have his righteousness imputed to us at the moment we just simply trust him for the forgiveness of sins and for eternal life. Now, Father, I do pray that as we go, I I pray that you would put a protective hedge around each and every soul here. Uh, I pray that you would get us to our destination safely, help us live lives tomorrow and the day after and the day after that would glorify you. That would be such a public testimony for Jesus Christ that others would want to talk to us about him and that we may have the words to say to answer their questions. Father, now I pray that you would dismiss us with the riches of thy grace and peace and mercy upon us, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.